Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. In the early 1900s, Swiss engineer Alfred Buchi was ahead of his time. The internal combustion engine that powers most of our vehicles today was only a decade or two old. A typical automobile engine produces power when air enters a cylinder, mixes with fuel, and then a spark plug creates a tiny explosion that pushes the piston up. The piston then going up turns a shaft and gears which then make the wheels turn. The whole process creates waste air that we call exhaust, which then comes out of the muffler. Theoretically, the faster a car can burn fuel, the more power it produces and the faster it goes. This is why some of the world's fastest cars have very large 8-cylinder or 12-cylinder engines. Generally speaking, more cylinders equals more power equals more speed. At the beginning of the 20th century, Alfred Buhi was already asking an important question, at least to him and those of you that like to drive fast. How, or is it possible, to increase the performance of an engine without increasing its size? Is it possible to increase the performance of an engine without increasing its size? That was his question. Well, he found the answer to his question in 1905, when he filed a patent for the first turbocharged engine. For engineering and mechanical minds, uh, Buhi's uh, solution was simple. If more air can be forced into each cylinder, the engine will burn more fuel and then create more power. Well, how? Well, in layman's terms, Buhi figured out a way to recycle part of the exhaust an engine produces by sending most of it back into a compressor that then shoots it back into a cylinder, burning more fuel, creating more power, thus creating more speed in the same sized engine. As the 20th century progressed, his invention eventually was installed into airplane engines and marine engines because of the constraints of size that both of those modes of transportation have. Interestingly though, long before the turbocharger was invented, the Lord figured out how to get better performance out of the same sized people. For centuries, he's been drawing sinners to faith in his son, Jesus Christ, and injecting them with the indwelling Holy Spirit so they can do more than what they could do on their own. And this is what the Apostle Paul wants to talk to us about today as we resume our series in the book of Ephesians called Chosen. 
I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Ephesians chapter 3 and pull out the sermon notes in your worship folder. And as you turn there, let me just review some uh, background information about the book of Ephesians. You might remember the Apostle Paul helped plant the church in the city of Ephesus during his second missionary journey around 53 AD. He then left and then returned a year later and he stayed three years in that city preaching and ministering. He's now writing a letter back to his dear friends in Ephesus while under house arrest. It's about 60 to 61 AD, or about three to four years after he last saw them. The theme verse for this series that I think captures the meaning of the book in one verse is Ephesians 1.4. If you haven't done so already, I'd encourage you to highlight it in your Bible or underline it. But let's read it out loud together. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, throughout this letter, the Apostle Paul has been reminding us, directly and indirectly, that if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you were chosen for a purpose. So what's our purpose? Simply put, it's to glorify God in everything that we do. And so for this reason... The Apostle spends the first three chapters of this six-chapter letter establishing our position in Christ so that he can then explain in the last three chapters of the book how it should shape our purpose in life. Therefore, anyone who claims to know Christ as their Lord and Savior should no longer live for themselves but now they live for Christ. However, as some of you, and even I can attest, living for Christ can sometimes be harder than living without Him. In fact, living for Christ can be downright overwhelming at times. Thus, our big idea for today is, is this. Whatever God calls us to do, he empowers us to do. Whatever God calls us to do, He empowers us to do. As the Apostle Paul concludes the first half of this letter on the believer's position in Christ, he pens this majestic and powerful prayer for his readers. It's an appropriate segue because what he is about to ask us to do in the last three chapters could easily be overwhelming. For, for example, in chapter 4, Paul is going to challenge and call us to make the unity of the church a top priority. He's going to call us to pursue holiness and to serve others with our spiritual gifts. Then in chapter 5, he's going to call us to be sexually pure. Wives to submit to their husbands and husbands to love their wives. In chapter 6, he's going to call on children to obey their parents and for parents to raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Employees to submit to their employers. And all believers to wage in spiritual warfare. So what's my point? Well, all of these life applications 
are impossible to pull off in our own strength. They can only be accomplished with the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Thus, Paul's prayer here in chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. Now, today's passage is the second of two prayers in this letter to the Ephesians. The first prayer is in chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. And before I read uh, the prayer, something I want to point out to you that uh, is uh, worth noting is that once again we have a prayer in the Scriptures that focuses on the spiritual condition of the readers, not their physical comfort. He doesn't pray they would feel better. He doesn't pray that they would have more money, have more fun in life, or be happy. No, instead... He prays for their soul and their walk with the Lord. Follow along with me, if you would, as I read verses 14 to 19. Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Here's the first point on your outline that Paul wants us to get, and that is, the Lord empowers Christ's followers with an unlimited strength. The Lord empowers Christ's followers with an unlimited strength. His first prayer request for the Ephesians and for us is that we would be strengthened with power through His Spirit. It's here that the Apostle says there is supernatural strength available to the believer through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, we learned in chapter 1 that the born-again believer receives the Holy Spirit immediately upon conversion. Now, you may have noticed in your own personal Bible study that the Scriptures are filled with exhortations for God's people to be strong and courageous. Be strong, be strong. I, I haven't yet found in my studies of the scriptures anywhere where it says, you know, you're too strong. You need to settle down a little bit. <laughs> you know, you're a little too fired. You're, you're too brave. Just slow down, okay? I don't need you to be that brave, people of Israel or New Testament believers. Let's not take the world over all at once, you know. You ever thought about why all those verses about being strong and courageous and not fearing are in the Bible? Because we're all prone to be weak and fearful. And throughout history, all of God's people have given in to temptation, been overwhelmed by difficult circumstances, and caved when mocked for our faith. The Bible, though, is also full of reminders for us to rely on or to ask the Lord for strength. And when we do, we are able to resist temptation 
We are able to overcome difficult circumstances and to be bold with our faith. Now notice in verse 16 where this strength is deposited. He says, in your inner being. This is a turn of phrase that Paul sometimes used to refer to our heart. The Lord places his strength there instead of, say, in our muscles, because more often than not, our heart quits before our body does. When the author of Psalm 77, for example, was overwhelmed with troubles and he felt the Lord had abandoned him, he cried out to the Lord, My soul refuses to be comforted. My spirit faints. And when David was being pursued by enemies once again in Psalm 143, he too told the Lord, My spirit faints within me. It wasn't that David was physically exhausted from running for his life, but rather his spirit was exhausted from the anxiety of running. And so more often than not, our hearts quit before our body does. One thing is very clear in these first couple of verses of Paul's prayer, and that is that he wants us to know the Christian life was never meant to be lived using our own strength. Yet one of the things that surprises me after more than 20 years in full-time ministry is how many Christians still want to try, as if maybe they could be the first one that pulls it off in world history. Yet trying to do so is as exhausting as trying to push your car down the interstate instead of using the engine. Nobody would do that. If you were pushing your car down Interstate 99, being passed by all the motorists that are driving their car, cruising at 70 miles per hour, they would all look at you funny and wonder, why don't you just start it and get in? So there's some hope and encouragement here, I think, embedded in the text, and that is that the Lord does not want us to fail in the Christian life. He wants us to win. And He'll help us if we spend time with Him, and if we ask Him to give us strength when we need it. Now notice in verse 17, Paul says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, at first glance, verse 17 can be a little confusing. At least it was for me when I first read it, because Paul appears to be saying the purpose of this strength is for them to receive Christ in their hearts. However, this can't be true because he was already acknowledging earlier in the letter that they were saved, that they already had Christ in their hearts. So what's he mean here? Well, the apostle uses a rare Greek word for dwell in verse 17 that means to be at home or to settle or to make a home. It paints a picture of Christ settling into our hearts like a new home buyer who then starts making it his own home and redecorating. 
repainting the walls and tearing up the old carpet. In other words, one of the byproducts that Paul hopes will come out of our faith being strengthened is that Christ will become the very center of our lives, that we will let him remake our hearts and have total control of our hearts and redecorate if necessary. So whatever God calls us to do, he empowers us to do. Next, look at verses 18 and 19 with me again. As he continues, here's the second prayer request that he writes for them. He prays that they would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Here's number two on your outline. The Lord empowers Christ followers with an unlimited love. He provides unlimited strength when needed, and he also provides unlimited love. Paul's second prayer request in verse 18 is that we would comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. Commentator John Stott suggests or proposes that breath may refer to Christ's love for all mankind. Length could refer to it lasting for eternity. Height may stand for God's love's ability to get the sinner to heaven. And depth could refer to Christ's love's, his, his love's ability to reach the deepest, darkest, worst sinners of the world. Regardless, you can see the apostle is doing his best to describe something that has baffled theologians for centuries. God's love. So he writes in verse 19, I'm praying that you'd be able to comprehend, to know the love of Christ. Now, this is interesting. The word know in the ESV in verse 19 uh, comes from a, a word in the original text that's talking a lot more than, than about intellectual knowledge or intellectual understanding. It actually means to have the kind of knowledge that comes from a firsthand experience. Another way to say it would be uh, to feel, to perceive, or to understand Christ's love for us. And we need the Lord's help, understanding his love for us because of our inherited sin nature. Our inherited sin nature warps our ability to perceive it. It's ironic, isn't it? The very thing that makes us need Christ's love makes it difficult for us to perceive his love. So we need the Lord's help. And it's there, Paul says. The Lord wants to help us with this, to understand his love for us. And we need his help because, as you see, look back at the text with me in verse 19, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The apostle is saying that God's love is so vast so far-reaching that it's impossible to measure with any metric that humans have. 
God's love is like a, it's like a home run hit so far out of the ballpark that the play-by-play announcer can only guess how far it went because it passed the 430-foot marker on the wall. Or, or his love is like a discus throw in the Olympics that goes so far beyond the tape that the judges just say, we don't know how far it went, just give the guy a gold medal. Or his love is like trying to measure the distance between Earth and the very edge or end of outer space. Who knows where that is or how far that is? Paul's point is that measuring God's love cannot be done, but the Lord can help us begin to understand it. Just as God's strength can carry us farther than we would go on our own, his love can inspire us to do things we wouldn't normally do on our own. James Montgomery Boyce tells a story about the time of when Napoleon's armies opened a prison that had been used by the Spanish Inquisition. And inside a dungeon deep within the prison, excuse me, his lieutenants found the skeletal remains of a Christ follower who had been incarcerated for his faith. Oftentimes, soldiers who were persecuting believers back then would give the believers two options. Renounce your faith in Christ and you can go home. You can go home to your family. You can go home and have your favorite food. You can sleep in your own bed. Or keep talking about Jesus and you're going to die in this prison cell. Well, clearly, this man chose the latter. The shackles that held his Ankles were still fastened to his now skeleton. And on the wall of his small damp cell, Napoleon's men found a cross that had been etched in stone with four words at each point of the cross. Above the cross was the Spanish word for height. Below the cross was the word for depth. To the left, the word for width, and to the right, the word for length. Clearly, the love of Christ empowered and inspired this man to keep his faith while he suffered for it, to keep it all the way to the end. Knowing that Christ loved him like no one else had loved him before. So whatever God calls us to do, he empowers us to do. Next, uh, finally, look look back at the text with me in verses 20 to 21. Paul writes a couple of my favorite verses in the New Testament here. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Here's number three in your outline. Therefore, the Lord is worthy of our unlimited worship. You see, since he gives us unlimited strength and he gives us unlimited love, he's worthy of our unlimited worship. I think that's what Paul's showing us here. He closes his prayer with what theologians call a doxology. 
It comes from the Greek word doxa, which means glory. The word doxology is a compound word put together that literally means word of glory. Simply put, a doxology is a brief phrase or a set of verses that expresses praise and glory to God. The apostle loved to write doxologies. There's two or three others that I have found in the New Testament. He loved to write these grand statements about God's character. They were sort of his way of saying, man, I am so fired up about what the Holy Spirit just told me to write in chapters 1 through 3. i got to stop and worship right now. That's in essence what it is. And in the other doxologies that I looked at that are in 1 Timothy 1 and Romans 11, it's kind of the same thing. He talks about God's character, God's grace, how awesome God is, and then boom, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, amen. And he goes back to writing. <laughs> of course, I'm paraphrasing. Now, in this closing doxology, Paul tells us three quick things about God's character. And this is letters A, B, and C on your outline. First of all, he says, the Lord is not limited by, A, our measurements. He's not limited by our measurements. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly. The NIV translates this, as immeasurably more, which is fine. And the New Living Translation says infinitely more. And that's fine as well. The word that Paul uses in the original text is a fascinating one. It's fascinated me for years. Because it means infinitely beyond or beyond all measure. And you have to think about that for a second. It, it, the word is in essence saying... Describing something here that cannot be measured and it goes beyond anything that you could even imagine or think of. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that the English language and even the Greek language struggles to convey this part of God's character. Language just doesn't do it justice. And I think it's because we've been conditioned since we entered kindergarten to think in terms of what's tangible and quantifiable. We learn to count at a young age. We've learned there are limits. Stay here in your crib. Or this is all you get to eat. Or no more candy. Limits have been placed on us our entire lives. However, Paul says, we can't do that with God. The Lord is able to do things that go beyond normal limitations. For example, we've been taught and we've all experienced that bodies of water stay put. They don't move. And because of that, if we want to traverse a body of water, we need a boat. But God changed all that when he parted the Red Sea for the Israelites in Exodus 14. Broke the rules of nature. Also, we've been taught that if there's only five loaves and two fish, but 5,000 people need to be fed, then 4,995 people need to go home. Because we've been taught you count, and then there's a quantity, and then you compare that to the need, 
And if the need and the quantity that we have doesn't match, then, well, some people are going to go hungry. But Jesus changed all that when he fed 5,000 using five loaves and two fish in Mark chapter 6. We've also been taught that once you die, you're dead forever. But Jesus blew that reality out of the water when he resurrected his friend Lazarus in John chapter 11. So, he's not bound or limited by our measurements, our numbers that we set in place. Letter B, he's also not limited by our request. This is mind-blowing as well as I grasp for words. Notice Paul says, for he's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask. Sometimes the Lord gives us more than we ask for in prayer. Because he loves us and he loves to be generous to his children. But he's not limited to only giving us what we prayed for. Well, you know, you only, you only asked for, for this, so that's all I'm going to give you. You know, you, you prayed for a husband. You didn't pray for a good-looking husband. Sorry. You know, if you'd prayed for a good-looking husband, I would have given it to you. But, and I know many of you ladies got more than you could ask or imagine there. So. so the Lord is not like the customer service manager who has to be nudged and prodded to do a little something extra because of your bad service experience. I don't like that. Let her see. He's also not limited by our imagination. He can do more than we think, verse 20. Not only does the Lord not need our counsel on how to answer our prayers, he also isn't limited by the kind of answers we can dream up. I've always loved the amplified Bible translation of this verse. It says this, here's how it renders verse 20. Now to him who is able to do superabundantly more than all that we dare ask or think, infinitely beyond our greatest prayers, hopes, or dreams, according to his power that is at work within us. Whew. Now the Amplify, it's not meant to be a readable translation. Instead, it's a translation that throws a lot of words at the wall to see which ones will stick because there are several different English words you can use to translate the Greek. And so that's... But, but I, I've always been fascinated with how the Amplified translators, what words they threw at superabundantly, infinitely beyond our greatest prayers, hopes, or dreams. And so, what's that mean for us? No matter what difficult circumstances or obstacles or pressures we are facing, nothing is impossible for the Lord. Nothing's impossible for him. And he delights in that because when he does the impossible, when he does more than we can ask or think, when he does what's immeasurable, he gets glory for it. And what's it, did, you, did you notice too that we can't even take credit when he does that? We can't even take credit. Yeah, I prayed for that. You know, like I had something to do with what he did. Yeah. Yeah, because, you, you know, if it wasn't for my awesome prayer life, you probably wouldn't have done that, you know? You know. I mean, aren't you lucky I prayed for you to get out of the hospital sooner? Isn't that great? You know, we can't, we can't do that. 
So applications. What do we do with this? Here's three that, that come to mind. Because Ephesians 3, 14 to 21 leads to a logical question. Well, how do I get this power or this strength in this love? Well, there's a prerequisite, first of all, and that is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Not church attendance, not serving in the children's ministry, not tithing, but a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. If you don't know Christ personally, you can know him by simply repenting of your sin and by faith trusting in him alone for your salvation. Not only will you receive forgiveness for your sins and the gift of eternal life, you will also receive a boatload of other benefits that only Jesus can give. Some of which are found in this prayer. Now, if you have made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, here are three applications I think we can glean from this prayer. Number one, depend on the Lord's strength. You see, when... Paul says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that the Lord offers strength through his indwelling spirit. That means he wants us to use the strength that comes from his indwelling spirit. But again, what surprises me about people, even believers, seasoned believers, is that sometimes one of the hardest things for us to do is to rely on the Lord's strength. It seems so simple, doesn't it? So cliche. Oh, just, just lean on, depend on the Lord. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's hard for us. And I think this is because our pride tries to convince us in the face of overwhelming circumstances, you've got this. You don't need anybody else's help. But then what happens is if we fail, our pride forces us into self-pity. And if we succeed, our pride wants to take credit. Both results steal glory from God. The first step, I think, it seems to me, when it comes to depending on the Lord's strength, is coming to an end, to the end of our own strength. And what I've found in my own walk with the Lord is that you can either do that voluntarily or he will bring you to a place where you do it involuntarily. Contrary to the popular cliche, God helps those who helps themselves, which is nowhere in the Bible, the scriptures actually teach that God helps those who admit they can't help themselves. And so the next time you find yourself running out of strength to carry on, take a cue from the Psalms by simply praying, Lord, I can't do this. Please help me. I know you've got this. I know you can get me through this. Number two, grasp the Lord's love. Some believers don't struggle to grasp God's love for them because it surpasses all knowledge, but rather because they view God's love for them through the lens of their imperfect earthly father. 
Thus, all the failings and the shortcomings of their earthly father are transferred upon the Lord. Because for some reason, the sinner thinks, well, if my earthly father was that way, God must be that way too as a father. Now, this can be difficult to overcome, but it's not impossible. The Lord wants us to know how much he loves us. And it can be accomplished in two simple steps. First of all, renewing our minds with the truth of Scripture. For example, memorizing verses such as Psalm 86.4, Isaiah 54.10, or Galatians 2.20, which I have on the screen behind me, can help you retrain your mind to think accurately about the Lord. So, for example, when you're struggling to believe that God loves you and is for you, or maybe you're feeling like he abandoned you like your earthly father did, you would, you would want to pray or memorize or say out loud to yourself Isaiah 54.10, where the Lord says, For the mountains may depart, and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. Repeating a verse like that over and over again to yourself will eventually change the way you perceive God's love. The second step is to believe the truth of God's word by faith instead of listening to your feelings. You, you do have to take what God's word says about the Lord and about us and how much he loves us, you, you, have to, there is, you have to exercise faith. You have to believe it by faith. That means letting faith overrule your emotions. And you want to do that because our emotions are about as reliable as a politician in a poker game. But again, we've been conditioned since we were young to trust our emotions. Just follow your heart. God's word actually says the exact opposite. Don't follow your heart. That's what got you in trouble with the Lord in the first place. So God's word, it's unchanging, and it's proven reliable for millions of saints throughout the centuries, and it will do the same for you. Number three, third application, give the Lord unconditional worship. Worship is simply the adoration and celebration of God's awesomeness. It's it's adoring who he is and celebrating what he has done. Even when we're doubting who he is and when he's not done what we want him to yet. Aren't you relieved to know that God's love for you doesn't change with his emotions? So just as his steadfast love for us endures forever, our worship of him should do the same because he hasn't changed. Therefore, instead of coming to corporate worship on Sunday and leaving with the assumption, you know, I've worshipped him enough this week, we should instead leave here on Sunday saying, I, I, how can I worship him more? I just got started worshiping this week. Yes, there are going to be times when we don't feel like worshiping, but ironically, when you don't feel like doing worship, that is usually when you need to worship. 
And your feelings will change when you make yourself do it. So, give the Lord unconditional worship. Just like Paul did in this doxology. He spends three chapters unpacking all these truths about what Christ has done for us, and Paul can't help but stop, put the pen down, i got to do some worship here. We should do the same. Well, back in 2013, a prototype race car with a new 3.5-liter V6 Ford EcoBoost engine set a single lap speed record at Daytona International Speedway. Using Ford's new EcoBoost technology, driver Colin Braun was able to push Speedster up to 222 miles per hour. The record was significant for at least two reasons. First, the old record of 210 miles per hour was set by Bill Elliott while qualifying for the 1987 Daytona 500. And another reason why it's significant is that Elliott used a 1987 Ford Thunderbird with a 351 cubic inch V8 engine. Translation, it was a monster engine that took him up to 210. Thus proving the point I made earlier, conventional engineering says only larger engines can go faster. However, Ford proved on that day in 2013 that a smaller engine with a turbocharger can go even faster and use less fuel. You know, it doesn't matter what size you are. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you've been turbocharged so you can accomplish a lot more than a lap speed record. You can be changed by the power of the Holy Spirit working in you, and you can help change lives with the Spirit working through you. Because whatever God calls you to do, He'll empower you to do. Would you join me as we close in prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.